0: Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. This week's guest is Alex Merced, who is developer advocate at Dremio. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be on. Yeah, we're really excited to chat today. I like to start with all of my guests with their origin stories. I'd love to hear how you kind of ended up where
1: you are and got into tech in the first place. Oh, okay. This is a fun one. Okay, so this really goes all the way back, so... To give full context, when I was a kid, I was always like really big into video games. So like my interest in technology and wanting to like to develop things really kind of start with video games. So like in high school, I got really into using this software called RPG Maker. And there, like that's kind of where I started kind of really getting used to ideas of like if statements and just kind of conditional logic and really thinking through like the logic of a game. On top of that, there was a period of time where like my mom was doing her undergrad as a single mom. So it was no one at home to kind of keep an eye on us. So basically what would happen is that she would take us to campus and leave us in the computer lab. So me and my brother would be in the computer lab and I would actually be playing like on Geocities making like little HTML websites back in the day. So I was really into all that as a young kid. And then when I went to college, I started out as a computer science major. Um, then life kind of took me in a different direction for a while. I kind of ended up getting more into like anthropology and sociology and cultural studies, marketing. I actually went through this whole phase where I was like a concert promoter. Then I ran the comic book store. This is all during undergrad. And then I ended up graduating and my first gig was like it was a marketing intern for like a shoe company. And then I ended up becoming a stockbroker. And then I ended up becoming a trainer of people in the financial industry for like 10 years. So basically, I went into this whole sort of different sort of educational direction for a very, very long time. They actually originally hired me for my technical expertise because they wanted me to help them develop their online learning platform. But I ended up just becoming sort of like the all-round instructor for all their courses over time and developing that online component at Greco Financial Training. And I did that till like 2019. In 2019, I was kind of felt like I had kind of grown as much as I had grown there. I had developed a pretty good reputation as a trainer and traveled the world doing training for financial professionals. And it was a really good time. And I was still doing a lot of technology for fun. I would still like read like C and C++ books for fun and read up on blockchain and things like that for fun. So I was like, you know what, why is this not what I'm doing? So in 2019, I decided to make the career switch. So I did like a boot camp with like General Assembly. And that went really well. I mean, I was already, I already pretty, had a pretty good foundation. So I was able to hit the ground running. And then as part of the program, one of the things that I've always learned in life was like a way to establish yourself. And this kind of comes back from when I, I started that comic book store back in, in my undergrad is like establishing a brand. So we, we were successful with that store because like I was really aggressive about building a brand. And even when in the financial industry, we were really aggressive about building brands. So the minute I was going to make this career switch, I started really hammering my brand, I like going on LinkedIn, putting out content, make, starting a YouTube channel, starting a podcast, creating this like brand for myself in this space that I'm about to enter. And in that, while I was doing this bootcamp, I would actually create videos about the things we were learning. and I would share them with my fellow cohort students and that helped them. And GA noticed that. So basically afterwards, they ended up hiring me as an instructor where I started at GA for years. I still do that part time. And but eventually I also ended up doing like working for a company called Crossfield Digital, where basically it was an agency where I did like a lot of working with like GraphQL, React. And then I ended up doing some other freelance work with companies like Crossfield gen ed systems where I built like application with Svelte and Flask where that reads like genetic VCF forms. And that was a lot of fun. So that was my first time really like playing with like more data oriented stuff and really kind of thinking about how do I optimize the reading of this data to address certain performance issues. Then I worked for another company called uh, Campus Guard, where it was they already had this like existing sort of like CRM database system. and. One was helping them kind of develop certain workflows. And then two was like helping them optimize performance of them. So like learning how to offload work onto like serverless, like lambdas and stuff like that. So a lot of these experiences kind of taught me like a lot about different architectures from systems. But all throughout all of it, I was always still building that brand, building that YouTube channel, building those podcasts. To this day, there's like thousands of videos on my YouTube channel. And then I learned about this whole thing called developer advocacy, where basically you just get to create content, which I already do for fun. I'm like, wait a second, there's a job that is like what I do for fun. So I was like, okay, yeah, like this is tailored for me. Like my whole life's been education and technology. And this is sort of like the role. So I applied for, I started applying for DevRel jobs. It was a very natural fit. So it was, it had a very good response to those applications. And then Dremio ended up sort of being sort of like the winning offer. And then I've been with Dremio, which was a really interesting switch because like I was very comfortable in the web space, but I was new to the data space. Like I had some exposure from the work with like the genetics app and the working with a campus guard on their CRM and stuff like that. But this whole like big data, data lake house space was very new to me. And it's been really interesting that now sort of become one of the voices that's kind of really banging the doors about sort of data lake houses, about table formats like Apache Iceberg and things like that, and kind of figuring out ways to help people understand what it is, the value of it and whatnot. And that is the story really
0: zigzaggy path to get here. There's definitely a lot of things you mentioned that feel similar to my path into tech, like got a history degree, kind of self-taught developer, did a lot of weird random jobs on the side. But one of the things I noticed when I was doing some background research on you is how prolific you were with the content. A lot of people are like, oh yeah, like I like making developer content. But you've put out like thousands of videos and podcasts and blog posts. I mean... There's a lot to impact there. Like, I'd love to hear how you got started with that and how you evolved it into something that's an ongoing, reproducible, scalable, like, production
1: line. Yeah, I mean, part of that is just kind of finding, like, the right piece of software. Like, if anyone watches my videos, like, there isn't, like, I don't do a lot of post-editing. I usually actually, like, if I run into, like, an error, I actually leave that in there. And for two reasons. One, I mean, of course, it saves me time editing, but also I want people to watch me debug code. Like, I want other developers to be like, Okay, that's kind of how he developed his Google search or this is how he did his console logs or to see sort of that thought process as I go through it in a live way. But because of that, I'm able to generate like a lot of content. But also, I just develop a pretty good workflow where I can knock out a content and have it pretty much ready to publish pretty instantaneously. Also, just like picking up on a lot of little pieces over the years. So like I've developed a really good workflow for like image generation using my phone. Like a lot of any editing or video or image work I do is all literally from my phone. So when I was in New York and I'd be in the subway for hours, I would actually use that time to like edit thumbnails, images, create diagrams with software like Adobe Express and Video Leap is a software I love on my phone that really makes it's like having Final Cut Pro on your phone. It's great. So getting really just familiar with like tools and developing good workflow with those tools really helped me accelerate but also just the experience of training people for so long. So basically, when I worked at Greco Financial Training, the way we taught there was very unique. It wasn't just like PowerPoints and everything was very, very artisanal, <laughs> to put in a way where basically we had to memorize the content and it would be like a hundred slides. But instead of you like flipping through a slide deck, you literally wrote the slides almost in the exact same way with multiple colors and the colors had signified different things. And there was a very like clear method to it. That I spent years sort of adopting and sort of like embracing that really helped me think about sort of like how do I construct the message and also a lot of times like new exams would come out so like for exams that I knew to teach that I didn't teach before like let's say a series three I would have to develop the content for it so I kind of developed this sort of cadence of being able to say okay here's the information how do I package that in a way that someone who knows zero can think about it like how do you construct a story around it that connects And that really served me very well moving into tech space because I was able to take that approach, that thought process and just kind of continue snowballing it to creating technical educational content.
0: How do you come up with new topics for videos? Like when I used to do DevRel stuff and I was writing tutorials or blog posts or whatever, you know, you hit writer's block sometimes. It's not always easy to come up with a novel idea. And I saw that you have like a huge range of topics. So how are you actually like, managing that and really making sure that you have interesting ideas to put out there. Yeah,
1: for my personal stuff it's just my curiosity. So like I think it's a lot of tech podcasts and then someone will mention something like, oh, like someone's talking about like Astro. And then I'm like, OK, I want to go play with Astro. So now I'm going to whenever I go play with something that I'm curious about, the way I motivate myself to play with those things is I make content while I do it. So usually my approach is I'll first I'll build something with it and I'll document it as I build it and there's a blog. And then after I write the blog, then I'll go back and build it again and make it a video. And then I end up with two pieces of content and I've reinforced what I've learned in that process. Now, as a DevRel, that is definitely much harder because basically you're trying to operate in a narrower pool, like you're trying to create content around a specific tool or specific space. I was fortunate in my particular role, like my particular role, one of the things I was really focused on was advocating for an architectural pattern the data lakehouse. lake house. And particularly for like these ideas of like open table formats, particularly Apache Iceberg. And the cool thing is, Apache Iceberg works with lots of tools. Like it's one of the big reasons people want to use Apache Iceberg because you can use it with your favorite data tools. So that gave me a lot of room of where I can kind of create content. Whether it's like, hey, using Apache Iceberg with a, a, a Apache Spark, using uh, Apache Iceberg with Apache Flink, using Apache Iceberg with Dremio, and then Dremio in itself connects. One of the cool things is that. It, is designed to be sort of a very open platform where it can reach a lot of places where you store data and deliver that data to a lot of places, This creates a lot of permutations and sort of examples I can make saying, hey, you know what, maybe you want to take data you have in a JSON file and turn it into an iceberg table. You can do that with Dremio. Or maybe you want to take data from these two different places, combine them together to create a BI dashboard. So I was fortunate enough that there was some enough flexibility in the tooling that I was Sort of specializing in that leaves room for a lot of content and also the fact that the data lake house was a concept that was and it's still kind of a new idea that many people still haven't adopted yet so a lot of the content is more just sort of explaining the concepts and the higher level of what is this why is this why are we here why are we at this point in our history in the data space which gives me a lot of room for content where basically I could get to become a historian and learn about the historical things like Hadoop and how Hadoop was used and on-prem data lakes and how it got us to here. And this whole like data, big data world was like very new to me at the time. And now it's hard to imagine a time when I didn't know about all this stuff and didn't understand all this stuff. But it basically, the nature of my particular world gave me a big pool to play in. But that's not necessarily always the case. But I always try to like straddle between sort of tutorial type content, where basically, hey, we get hands on. And then content where is like, okay, the high level sort of why's. Because I do think I'm very big on trying to like, paint that picture. Why these things? And how do we get here? Because a lot of times, things are weird. And you're like, okay, why do things work this way? Why are we in this situation? And without that historical context, it's really hard to appreciate. So bringing that to the table is oftentimes a lot of fun. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, the
0: process you're describing of build the thing, write about it, create video from it sounds right to me. Like that sounds really similar to what I used to do when I would write a lot of tutorials. I think the thing that was so impressive to me is the volume and the consistency on an ongoing basis of putting this stuff out there, right? Like it's a habit to do that stuff repeatedly. And I think it's really easy to put something out once or twice and really hard to put something out once or twice a week. And that's often like a big gap for a lot of DevRel teams is like building that content calendar, consistently putting out high quality content, iterating on it, analyzing it and like
1: making that a repeatable motion and not a one off thing. It was a couple of things like especially in like the momentum I had in the earliest stages that was just driven because I was making that career switch. And basically to me, I was trying to fit a decade worth of experience in a couple of years and trying to like just get us touch a little bit of everything and really kind of get my fingers dirty. But another thing that's always driven me even before being in the tech space, like even when I was in, I mean, there was even a brief foray into politics at some point and all these different spaces where I created content, it was always also a drive to like build that brand. And I'm not saying like, I don't know if everyone should be like this as hyper-focused about building their personal brand as I can be sometimes because it can distract from other things in life. But the idea is like, I'll sit there and be like, okay, hey, every time I create content, it's not just an investment in like my current job and my current role, but it's an investment in the Alex Merced brand and my authenticity and my authority in the space that I'm in. So it's, I think of it almost like currency. Okay, I'm making this investment that's going to mature and have a return. And when I go on LinkedIn and if I'm seeing other people's posts and I'm not seeing any of my posts, like getting like likes that day, I'm like, okay, well, I need to go make another two posts because <laughs> I need to capture people's attention because again, random lessons I've learned from different experiences. One, ex- one thought experiment I had in college, this is definitely one of the weirdest things I've done. One day I was just wondering what would happen if I just put up a bunch of flyers all across campus that say, that promote this thing called the Alex Merced fan club. No one knows who I am. It's not that I've done anything. I'm like, I'm nobody. But everyone's just seeing this piece of paper with like my face on it saying there's some sort of fan club, like he must be somebody. So I literally got up at like three in the morning, went to every room on campus and put up these flyers. And then basically the next several years of college, people would just kind of like see me and stop me and say, hey, you're Alex Perset. You did something. Like, I don't know what it is, but I know you're something, you know? So when that kind of just clicked for me. And the idea is like, you have to be visible. And so basically, problem is you can create really great content, but what's visible is always what's just release, you know? It's like there's great movies that were released 10 years ago, but people are still talking about the movie that was released last Friday. So in that case, I got to keep a steady cadence of stuff just constantly coming out to constantly be, to have that visibility. And that visibility then Again, gives you the branding, that gives you the authority, that gives you the leverage to take advantage of other opportunities.
0: Do you use any AI tools or outsourced work to produce any of what you're doing?
1: Not before this year. <laughs> but what's changed now? I mean, I think there's a lot better tools for that. Like, I mean, like things like ChatGPT and Bard. Like, I, I definitely like them for creating like, what I, I've been using them a lot for is like when I do my videos now. I would end up spending a long time in the video creating like example data structures. So like I'd be creating like an array of dogs and it'd always be the same array of dogs with the same names all with an age. And it's just like a really like lacking, not a very complex array, just because I don't want to spend like half hour of the video just writing an array. But now I can just go on Google Bar and say, hey, can you give me an array of 10 dogs with these properties generate a nice data set, so I can do much more complex examples. And the cool thing is that I'll do that in the video so people can see how they can leverage AI to create data sets to get better practice when they're doing like, you know, practicing on iterating over data sets or something like that. So what I'll oftentimes do is like, I will write, I usually will just write because like there's a certain way I sort of like talk and I'll write my content, but then I will definitely like put it through like a thing and say, hey, can you clean up my sentence structure a little bit and whatnot and then get like a nice better version or same thing with like a social media post because I'm not really good at thinking, Oh, let me go put emojis here and there. But I know what I want to say. So I'll say it and like, hey, can you spruce this up for LinkedIn? Thank you. (laughs) There's little things like that, like, similar at the point where I could just like have it read my mind. Like I think GitHub Copa is actually pretty decent at reading my mind, but um, like a lot of it is like what I'll do is I'll write the content and then sometimes I'll use external tools to kind of help make this clean it up a little bit, but particularly like grammatically and things like that. When the tooling for that has just become so much better, like I would definitely say my productivity has definitely skyrocketed this year.
0: (laughs) That's great. I mean, I use AI for all sorts of weird things, but I've found that it makes a lot of really tedious tasks really straightforward now. Oh, yeah. And I've, I use it for ideation. I use it for mm-hmm. generating things that I would have to spend a lot of time looking up. Like, there's so much there, but I don't think it's anywhere close to replacing the average developer. So it's like no. this incredibly powerful tool, but I don't buy the
1: Doom. Yeah. You know, about it, it needs people. It needs a guiding hand. But there's amazing things you can do with it. Like, some of my favorite things kind of hinting at that. Like, I love using it for creating like docs that don't exist. Like, I'll have two things. I'm trying to figure out how they work together. I can just put the pieces of the docs that I need that are relevant to two things into the prompt, and they can help me then generate an example and like get me through blockages much quicker. I'm thinking, okay, how do I make these two things work together? Or if I have an error that I like, especially with like Java, because Java errors are like, the bane of my existence, just help me just kind of like break through like the understanding and break down those errors. and like, hey, can you walk me through this a little bit and break these down for me so I can start kind of diagnosing what are my next steps? So it just definitely makes so much things that would take me like maybe like a week of res- like a week of just sort of like hammer and chisel and really accelerate them to like, OK, hey, I can break through this sort of blockage in a day because I know what I want and I know where the information is. But this can just help me put it together faster.
0: That makes a lot of sense. You kind of touched on this earlier when you were talking about the training methodology that you used to use. But I'm curious, like, what other best practices or patterns you borrowed from in-person training that you use in your developer content?
1: I guess a lot of it is more sort of the assumptions that I make. I make very little in the way of assumptions as far as what the prior knowledge is of someone consuming my content. Even if I'm making content that's geared towards people who are more senior, I don't assume that they know things. Just because, because everyone has like their sliver of knowledge, but not everyone, like maybe a lot of people know Docker, but people, what they know of Docker are completely different, or the way they apply Docker is completely different. So I always make a lot of effort to explain not just how to do the things, but why I do the steps that I take. It's not like, do the thing, okay, great, you can replicate that I did it. But if you understand why I did it, you might understand why you might do it differently in a different situation, in a different context. So it's taking that moment, the extra time to lift the veil over things or go back and like explain what something is from scratch. Even though like, if you're writing like a piece of data, some people might assume, like, oh, yeah, people have known what Hadoop is for years. Like, no, a lot of people don't know what Hadoop is. So let's talk about it. So like, I can get into the weeds, but even when I get into the weeds, I try to do it in a way where like, wherever you're at, I can sort of like, get you. If you don't understand exactly everything I'm saying, you have an idea where I'm going and why I'm saying it. Because when I was doing finance, my students were any people from people who've been in the industry for like 30, 40 years to high school dropouts. So when you're explaining like interest rate movements and on the bond market, and you have that wide sort of a gap, you really have to kind of like figure out a way to make it interesting for both ends. How do I be technical? enough to be interesting to the people who've been doing this for a while, but at the same time, accessible enough to the people who haven't to be able to follow. So that I would say is probably the most useful asset that I developed from the years of doing that that brought me over to here, because it's very similar where I'm taking very technical concepts and dealing with an audience with a very wide experience gap, depending on who's sort of consuming it. And that's been very helpful. Yeah, I've heard it described as
0: almost like layers of an onion, right? Where like they're are levels of complexity that you can unpack as your understanding as a reader increases, but that you need to cover all your bases as a content creator. Like I remember I used to do a lot of hardware tutorials. And I would be like, Oh, this is what a resistor does, you know, but also like, here's how this sensor works when you plug it in and write all this code to control it. And those are two like, vastly different levels of expertise and complexity. But People don't necessarily touch all the different parts of that in a normal day. And so you have to kind of adapt, which makes a lot of sense. So now that you've been doing this for a while, I imagine that your sort of like process and strategy has evolved a little bit, right? Like, what are some of the newer trends that you've seen in building content for developers, like either in your job or external life?
1: When it comes to building content, it depends on sort of what I'm trying to do. If I'm just trying to create like enabling content, a lot of times it's just trying to get involved with different other departments and other parts of the company, because oftentimes you can discover challenges that you weren't aware were challenges for people who are using the software. So like I'll oftentimes like things that just seem that maybe have made sense to me or I didn't realize was a challenge suddenly become clear when I'm in these sort of conversations about different like prospects or existing clients or whatnot and kind of hearing their stories. Or when I go to conferences, I just have conversations with people who are not even using like Gremio, but they're, they still have challenges with their data and whatnot and kind of thinking, okay, how can I speak to that? So just kind of getting out there and not always just depending on yourself to come up with the idea, but having like letting the world kind of feed you ideas. That's what I've been better about that, like better by just like going out there and being more aggressive about having those conversations to kind of find inspiration there. Also, just depend on like other times, like my goal isn't necessarily enabling, but my goal is to get the message in front of new people. And in there, like trying to discover, like, okay, how do you find new audiences? And in essence, like working as a lot of these things are sort of like very typical, like in DevRel, where you know, like writing joint blogs or doing joint webinars and doing whatnot, but getting to more of a cadence of doing things like that, definitely been more, more of a recent movement for me. Like, they, like the, probably the first couple of years was really kind of building this big body of content, particularly around Apache Iceberg to really kind of a, I think to this point, I'm probably put out the most content on Apache Iceberg at the moment. And then just kind of having that there is that solid foundation to do all these other things on. And then this last year has been a lot of like we're publishing an O'Reilly book on Apache Iceberg, uh, The Definitive Guide. And a good chunk of my years has just been writing that. And that's been an experience because it's a different thought process when you're writing something like that long and that, going that deep. While, while I mostly read in like articles where you go deep, but usually like it's a very like you're hitting a narrow piece. And you're not doing it for like 10,000 words. You're doing it for like three, 4,000 words. So it's definitely been an experience kind of like seeing how that whole process works and going, working with editors and having them edit it, which I think has also helped me become a better writer. So overall, like the things I would say are added to my arsenal are more like, again, collaborative efforts. And then again, just improving sort of my written content. Because I've always been, where I've been strongest is always in like the verbal, like you could just throw me on a stage somewhere, tell me to talk about X, and I'll just do it off the cuff. So, like, that's why I'm able to come up with so many podcasts and so many videos, because uh, speaking wise, I am super comfortable. Written has always been, always takes me a little bit more work than verbal. So, this year's definitely been a good, good year for me, sort of upskilling on the written side. Yeah. We do this
0: game sometimes at hackathons called Slideshow Karaoke, where you go on SlideShare, pull up a random deck, and someone has to get on stage and, like, Pitching sight unseen, and it's hilarious. It's a fun game, but I feel like you probably do very well at that.
1: Oh, I'd love to play that. It sounds fun. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. It's a weird, fun experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I have a couple of different like things I'm curious about here with the mm-hmm. iceberg stuff. Obviously, it's not static project, right? It's not just like staying still. What is your methodology for keeping your content up to date in DevRel? Because I've heard a lot of different approaches to this from different people. But like, how do you make sure that
1: your content doesn't get stale or outdated? I mean, I think fortunate enough that none of my earlier pieces have gotten stale yet. Things have changed quite a bit, but like, fortunately, a lot of things have changed, particularly in Apache Iceberg, have been more like new features than changes to old features. Not breaking Uh, changes. Yeah. So like they haven't broken my previous work yet. (laughs) <laughs> and that's one thing I really like about the Apache Iceberg project because they are very, like, the people involved in that project are very cognizant about that, you know, the issue with breaking changes and changing APIs. So they've been very delicate about that, basically adding but not breaking and having very sort of clear contracts, sort of like, okay, here, these are sort of like the guarantees you get on this version and the next version and really going through a process of kind of setting those things up. So that's made my life easier. Probably if there were breaking changes, I would take a couple different approaches. Like I know for my personal content, like something that where like a lot of changes have happened with something like a React Router, where there was like huge changes when you got to like React Router 6, which basically made all my old React Router 5 content pretty much useless, unless you're using React Router 5 intentionally. So I just made new videos. And that always works out really well because I leave the old content out there because some people might still need it. And I'll go back and maybe change the name so that way it's more clear as to what the purpose of it is. And sometimes those breaking changes create the reason for like new content like one of my most popular pieces of content had to revolve around Gatsby Like there was a change in I think between three and four that had to do the change the way some of the markdown parsing worked. so if you wanted to upgrade your Gatsby you really couldn't and if you wanted to fix a particular error it's been a while since had that one particular piece but Actually, that piece of content led to a chain of freelance work that was pretty nice. But basically, because it was a breaking change, it created an opportunity for content because people need to understand, like, okay, well, I I can't upgrade. How do I still adapt and continue working with the older version? And that created an opportunity for content that wasn't being made because no one had been talking about that particular friction. There really just wasn't any content on it. It was like I was able to find like a couple of threads on Stack Overflow to discover what the deal with this issue was. And then once I discovered the issue, I'm like, okay, well, that was a lot of fun. So I created a piece of content and it became really popular. And the other really, really popular piece of content I have is anything on Mongo relationships, which I feel like there's a lot of content on that. But for some reason, my videos just done continue to do well in that particular area. But yeah, I just keep making new videos. Like I'll make a new set of React, Svelte, view and Angular videos every year because they change every year. Wow. Oh, that's cool. I mean, I feel like that's... Probably a time
0: intensive approach, but it might be the only solution if you're doing video content like for written, you can go back and edit it and add, you know, updates. But yeah, video is quite a bit harder. I mean, the extreme of that is the book, right? Where like if something changes, you got to put out a new book. It's interesting because I imagine Iceberg is probably mature enough that the things that you're writing about are not likely to change significantly. And so it can be a reference material that lasts a long time.
1: Yeah, and then, like, the cool thing about, like, what Apache Iceberg is, like, so Apache Iceberg is, like, this table format that all it's really doing is providing this, like, metadata over your data, so that way you can interact with your data storage, like, it's a database. So it's not trying to do a lot of things, it's just trying to provide enough metadata to leverage your data and your storage much more intelligently. So in that case, like, because of the scope of the project, there isn't too much fear of things, like, sort of really... Changing overly drastically because it's meant to be sort of like this sort of cornerstone pillar in someone's data infrastructure. So you don't generally want something like that changing too much. So again, works out. (laughs) I mean, even on the video side, like I don't mind doing like redoing content because just every time I do it, I feel like one, I learn something. Every time I redo, I reteach React, something about it, something clicks that didn't click before, and I know it deeper. And then Also, like doing it for all the different frameworks, I get to see the patterns, like, now the big thing is signals, like, how do each of them influence signals? And you get a deeper appreciation for the signals pattern as a whole, because you're seeing the different implementations and you're seeing sort of what's in common and what's different. And it just makes the distinction between sort of like, the pattern and the implementation much more clear mentally. That makes a lot of sense. Out of all the different like educational projects
0: you've worked on, like being an instructor, putting out all these videos, being a developer advocate,
1: where have you felt that you made the biggest impact on people? Probably the videos are, have made the most impact, but where I feel I've made the most impact is generally as an instructor, just because I'm dealing directly with students, and then I get to keep in touch with them and see sort of like their outcomes after the fact, which has been very satisfying. Whether that was in finance or whether with General Assembly, I get to see sort of like the after effects, which is really cool when you see like where some of these people are years later and the careers they have. But even in all my jobs. I've created information that I have helped people do a thing. And it's always satisfying to see people break through barriers that they had or challenges that they've had. So it's probably another thing that fuels me to create so much content. Cause I just I'm addicted to that feeling. And I just like I'm like constantly <laughs> checking my phone to say, hey, do I have a new comment? Does someone say, like, yay, this really helped me? So it's just trying to like think of okay, for example, a recent project I did just because why not? I had this website devnursery.com, and I created like a whole sort of docs page to it at, at docs.devnursery.com. That's literally just like if you were a new developer, it's basically like a documentation page that has all the information that I would have wanted when I was a new developer. That just like focuses like, okay, hey, how does the internet work? How does cores work? What is cores? Like all the information is already out there, but when you're an early developer, it's like oftentimes it's not obvious where to go look for it. here's like a nice little like knowledge base. And this has been a, like that's been a tool where like LLMs actually have been really useful because you can generate like a lot of documentation very quickly when you're just trying to create like a knowledge base. So that's been a really cool project. And that's actually been I mean it's helped me because I've learned some things from like really, like reading through it sometimes. So yeah, I just like creating things that help people. I mean, one, it's satisfying, and two, it just kind of like reminds me that I exist in a sense. You know, if Alex is in a room by himself. Does anyone actually know that Alex exists? But if someone consumed the tutorial now, Alex exists. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. Do you actually get like constructive comments and feedback on YouTube and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I get feedback. It's I mean, not I just trolls. People. No, I mean, I've gotten maybe one or two trolls. I don't think like I've hit in quite hit the level of consistent views to have trolls yeah. yet. Usually it's like this video does really well, that video does really well. And then there's other videos that maybe get discovered at some other point. Like it's not right. I don't have people who are like on every video since every video is such a different topic. Yep. But yeah, I get some constructive criticism. A lot of times people are like, like, "Well, you know, why don't you edit out like the bug fixes? But I'm like, no, I want to keep those in there. But then I get other people who are like, oh, I love that you left the bug fixes in there because I learned a lot from that. So it's kind of nice to see like how different people take a different way. But the thing is, like my videos do run a little bit longer because I leave that extra content in there. But I feel like it's worth it because I think it's worth seeing the process. Right.
0: I completely agree. I mean, when I'm working with a lot of students at our events, I would say the most common skills gap is in debugging and searching for answers, because you go to a computer science class and they teach you like, how to write code and how to read the docs, they don't really teach you how to like use Stack Overflow or Google or whatever yeah. else, but it's kind of a different skill, right? Knowing how to interpret and search for an
1: answer to something is quite hard when you're starting. A hundred percent. And then also just like a lot of times when people like try to educate, they try too hard to make the experience too good. Yeah. Uh, in a sense that like, oh, no, everything always works all the time. It's like, oh, right. no, you yeah. write it perfectly and you never worry about it again. Yeah. Because then you yeah. set expectations too high. Like, I want you to yeah. know, like, hey, you can make mistakes. And when you run into those mistakes, see where they are. Like, there are best practices. Here they are. Watch me make those mistakes and you have a better appreciation of how to make your way through the landscape of X because of it. 100%. And I think
0: leaving the errors in or leaving in the problem solving parts of it probably goes a long way towards showing people that that happens in a real life context. Yes. On the Dev Nursery Docs thing, I find the concept of like creating a knowledge base like that so interesting. Cause I remember when I was learning to code, I was constantly landing on these pages like W3 schools or like things like that where it was simpler than reading the docs, and usually a little bit more interactive or visual, and consolidated in a way that like doc sites weren't. And for some reason that always resonated with me, like I always prefer to see a tutorial or a knowledge base, than to even go to the original docs, because a lot of times original docs suck, and they're like really dry and difficult to understand. And so it's really interesting that you're kind of like going that route again, because I do think that there's like some kind of interesting middle ground there between a tutorial and an actual docs page that it's kind of a gap for a lot of educational content.
1: Yeah. I mean, part of it was just sort of geared towards my students. Like, okay, I know that I always get these questions. Yep. And then there's just really isn't like, there's certain gaps that I know like even like W3 schools and MDN, like they yeah. don't hit this specific thing, like the way I'd like to answer it to my students. And the it was just to kind of create something that like, okay, this is like really geared towards I am new to this. Let me go, like, I can go look up a very deep explanation of cores, but one that walks, that sort of progressively gets to those deeper levels.
0: Yeah, I love that cores is the example too, because that's
1: just like such a pain in the butt, even for experienced developers. Oh, I know. Oh my God, there's so much to it. Like, it's just one of those things like you can explain it to somebody, you can go over what the headers are, but there's even more and more layers to it like a lot of the stuff, even when I go to MDN, like after being doing this for a while, like I read MDN and like, I get it just fine. and like, this is really good. It's, this doesn't exactly what I need to know. But if I go back to like my first couple months as a developer, I would have looked at that and been like, what? So like, why I'm is this
0: so painful?
1: Yeah. So trying to make some of those late, usually was like a later discoveries, more accessible earlier on. Oh, that's great.
0: Are you trying any of these, the kind of like newer platforms, like TikTok or anything like that? I've
1: tried to do TikTok. I'm not really good at short form content. I have a lot to say, How are your dance moves. I did a couple of bits where I like I sing. I used to do like a lot of like performing with a guitar and, and yeah. music when I was in college, and that's also on YouTube. But basically, I've tried. I just haven't been able to click with like TikTok, like Instagram. I post on regularly yeah. as much as I used to. Mainly, it's really LinkedIn is been my platform of choice lately. So there's my basically my main LinkedIn page. And then I run like three LinkedIn pages, one about Apache Iceberg, yep. one about data lake houses, and then I have a dev nursery LinkedIn page. I just started to start sharing the videos out and then YouTube, YouTube, where I put a lot of content on YouTube. Yeah. I uh, t- Twitter. I'm trying to be more regular about Twitter and Macedon, but it's always hard to get into the habit.
0: Yeah, it really does feel like LinkedIn has kind of evolved beyond a spam
1: farm into like a legitimate social network where people spend time. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, especially yeah. in the tech space, like I feel like yep. when I've been in other spaces, like I would never be on LinkedIn, but ever since I've been in tech, like I I'm never not on LinkedIn now.
0: Yeah. It feels very new since, I don't know, maybe like 2018, 2019 era.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I made the switch into tech in 2019. So probably was just right after that all happened. But like LinkedIn has been a very natural fit so far. And I haven't touched like, I mean, I'm on Facebook, but I used to like live on Facebook. Yeah. Now, like, I mean, I think it's also just the difference in spaces that I'm operating in nowadays in the spaces that I operated in in the past, like Facebook made more sense and Twitter made more sense and Instagram made more sense because a lot of what I was doing was a lot less demonstrating how to do things more than maybe communicating particular ideas, uh, whether they be like financial ideas or political ideas or something like that. Now I'm more really trying to it's more how to and Facebook isn't a good place for how to like YouTube's great. LinkedIn's great you know because I can do like a PDF post on LinkedIn and really do a nice little, like how to diagram and it just works better for that.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: What's the biggest mistake you've made in this whole journey? That's a good one. I definitely made a few. Oftentimes it's always oftentimes trying to do too much myself and not leveraging others as much as I can. So whether they're people who I immediately work around me or engaging other communities as aggressively as I can be to develop those sort of partnerships, those connections. I've been better about that now, and I've definitely like made an effort to be better about that. I oftentimes, over the years, especially in, like previous roles I had been before I switched into tech, it was very much like it come upon me to be sort of like an army of one because it basically was like either I did it or it wasn't going to get done. So that sort of mentality kind of stuck. But although like now I'm in a space where I need to be more collaborative and it's very much to my benefit to be more collaborative. So it's like kind of getting sort of like adjusting and sort of like letting go where like, okay, I don't need to wear all hats all the time has been sort of an adjustment. It's a strength in certain ways because I can wear them when I need to wear them, but I, I shouldn't be wearing them if I don't have to. So that way I can focus on certain things more strongly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I
0: saw that like a lot of the places where you'd work technically, it seemed like there were a lot of like, not necessarily like big tech companies, right? Where there's all this infrastructure and support networks and hierarchy, right? And so I've been in similar positions where You might be the only technical person on staff. Mm -hmm. And so everything falls to you. And that's really interesting, right? And creative. But it's a different muscle to sort of like delegate and like specialize. Agreed. Yeah. So so
1: that's sort of been, I guess that would probably where like I reflect on where I need to evolve the most that and then also just slowing down sometimes like, you know, being like, okay, hey, I don't need to have something out every day, take the time, have a few people look over first, sometimes my own sort of eagerness can provide some challenges. Yeah,
0: there's pros and cons to it. Outside of the work you do, are there any other like tech educators, creators that
1: you really like look up to and admire? Many. I mean, on the website, like I'm a huge fan of channels like Fireship.io. Like I love Fireship.io so much. And then in my early days, like things like Traversee and Academy were really big channels for me. Like basically whenever I was eating or I was walking, I was consuming (laughs) that podcasts like uh, Syntax and HTML, all the things are, are regulars in my, the data engineering podcasts, the data side of engineering, these are all podcasts that I listen to on a regular basis. My former colleague, Depankar Mazumdar, I learned a lot from, he's now moved over to a company called One House, but he had a really good way of just to, sort of visually breaking down a lot of concepts that was good because like I was always, I'm, verbally I'm very strong as like, but sometimes breaking down something visually and giving a really nice, like, diagram can sometimes be very effective because, like, again, a picture's worth a thousand words. So it was really kind of cool to see sort of his approach to that. So he's going to be doing great things. But, yeah, those would be sort of, like, the low hanging food at the top of my head. Basically, these, you spent that on LinkedIn. I mean, you'll see those faces. You'll see those people. Yep. I mean, they're, 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 they don't hide. <laughs> you know, a lot of them have huge followings now. Yeah. Oh, I know. Oh, my God. It's insane, like, the world of LinkedIn influencers. Like, I, you know, like... I don't remember that being a thing once upon a time, but now like you show up on LinkedIn and people are ready to be engaged and they want to be engaged and they want content and they want to delve deeper. And I love yeah. that because it's more based around like knowing things. It's not based around any kind of tribalism. It's not based around any kind of opinion. It's just about like people wanting to learn more. And I think like this, it's just it's a, it's a positive a community as you can hope for.
0: Yeah, totally. Awesome. This has been really great. The question I always like to end on with people is is there any, like, aspirational figure in tech or science that you'd love to, like, take to lunch and just pick their brain about how they do what they do?
1: Honestly, I don't know so much about how they do what they do, but I'd really like to sit down and pick Sam Altman's brain right now, especially everything oh. everything that's happened. In <laughs> especially Canada, with like the last uh, couple of days. Yeah. days. Yeah, it's just, like, that's insane. Like, you know, like, there's definitely some lessons to be learned there. That's quite a change of events. Like, it started off, like, you start off on the wrong side of the story, you end up on the right side of the story at the end. Like, there is some magic to be learned and gleaned from that, all that. Yeah. For anyone listening, like, we
0: are recording this, I think the day that he was reinstated as CEO of OpenAI yeah. after like five days of being fired, going to work for Microsoft, and now coming back out of nowhere, which been a wild ride to watch like I can't wait for like the documentary about this you know if uh, not only is he back
1: but the board that ousted him is gone
0: yeah insane like, like never seen anything like that.
1: no the last five days have been the most amazing roller coaster of sort of just corporate storytelling I've ever seen like yep. to not only get your position back but to sort of like vanquish those who try to to destroy you. It's like Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that I mean that sort of be like my biggest curiosity at all.
0: Yeah. I, I totally get that. I would love to know what actually happened there. Awesome and well, thank you so much for your time. I mean, I'm a fan of your work. You put out a lot of really good content and I really enjoyed hearing you talk about your process and how you've built that over so many years. We'll include links for people to find your work online, but Thank you again, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I had a great time, and thank you for having me on. And yeah, I look forward to future conversations. My pleasure, and happy hacking. If you enjoyed it listening, definitely subscribe and follow along for more. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking, and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, Thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking!